Join us as we gather around the hedge, where we dig into technology, business, and culture with the finest minds in computer networking. Well, hello, Tom. How are you today? Doing fine. How about you, Russ? I am okay. Just thinking about moving. Ooh. Ooh. Yeah. I know. You want me to move to Austin. I know that or Houston. Which is it? Austin would have been the best. Yeah. We'll see. We haven't looked at Austin, so there it is. Today we're being joined by Ed Lewis. Is that right, Ed? Yep, that's it. All right. And I see that, like Tom, you have a dinosaur in your background. That's a very important thing to have (laughs) as a dinosaur. I don't have any dinosaurs in my background. I feel very sad about that. (laughs) I have a buffalo, but or a bison. I should say bison. It's not a buffalo. There is a difference between the two. And so good. So today we're all joined around here talking about... The DNS core. Now, when I think of the DNS, I think of a very distributed system that doesn't really have a core. I mean, there are the 13 root servers, but they're really just anycast addresses at this point. They're not for real. Uh, There's not 13 servers any longer. There's thousands upon thousands scattered all over the place. So when we talk about DNS core, what exactly are we talking about? What, what, What is the phenomenon we're dealing with here? So this is a core in the sense of uh, research and statistics, in some sense. Okay. Uh, I've had a little bit different arguments with people over time about what I mean by this, but I guess the closest analogy I can come up with is when you do a census of people, you have this census-designated place that's a, a town that doesn't really exist, but they say, well, we'll make a town out of this region and count you as one two group of people for statistical purposes, for sampling and study and all that. So okay. getting back to the DNS core, I'm trying to create a space in the DNS, in this mythical uh, DNS cloud that is of interest for studying. And, you know, but in for, I guess, one of the reasons you want to study this stuff is you just want to see how is it, is it functioning well? But what I call the DNS core is one part of the DNS tree, which I find interesting. Okay. Uh, There are many, there there are many, and I, I want to point out that there are many different ways you can say things are interesting in the DNS. The DNS is a namespace, but I'm not necessarily looking at the namespace. I'm talking about the operation of the DNS. Uh, how, is it, how is it pulled off? But also, I'm looking at a part of the DNS which tends to be closer to the top of the hierarchy, the root zone and the TLDs, basically. You know, in, in a nutshell, that's what I look for as something that I want to study. Uh, the other examples of, of cores in the DNS I could think of are the, like the core of economic activity. Like, what are the high-profile uh, parts of the DNS, more commercial, uh, places, people that are in there for a profit motive or to just basically, not to say profit motive, but a, a value motive for the, for the world through the internet. There's also a core that could be around the highest traffic. You know, if traffic is your thing, if you're worried about uh, packets flowing and statistics in that area, you might want to look at what are the high-profile names, what names are used the most, you know, what, what are driving websites and, and, and such out there. So the different kind of cores out there. And when I refer to the DNS core, and I use the word the uh, probably you know, a little more loosely than I should, I'm referring to basically what's uh, at the root zone, uh, the top level domains that hang off of it. And I also throw in for good measure, the, the regional internet registries numbering uh, zones. 
when you look up reverse map, uh, reverse map being have an address, you want to find out what's the host name there. They manage zones, which are whose purpose is to map that. It's it's the same as DNS, but it's just it's reversed from what people think the DNS normally does. Okay, so let's try to explain that a bit more. So you're talking about the root, and in what sense are you talking about the root? You're not talking about just the names, right? Well, yeah, I start with what's in the root zone. I guess the other one thing I did leave out that's very important to this is that I want to have the root zone, the, the, the core rather, be something that's fairly concrete and fairly easy to identify and, and, and not, not, not have a lot of uh, uh, interpretation open to it. Uh, for example, uh, I could say I want the most interesting zones out there to be in my core, but if I, it's interesting changes over time, like what has high traffic, what you know, things come and go, merger and acquisitions happen, we mer- you know, business is going out of business. I want to have a area which is pretty steady in what it means. And so my, my definition of the core specifically is start with the root zone and every TLD that's listed there. Uh, and that's a concrete list. I just can download that. From there, I look at those TLDs and I look inside of them and do they have structure below them? Do they have names below them that belong to them? Or do they just you know delegate things right away? Like .com is an example where everything in .com is usually somebody else's company or registration or personal uh, website off of that. Now, I also, uh, so what's kind of special in there is ARPA. ARPA is a special zone in the DS which handles addressing and routing parameters. It's kind of like the engineering infrastructure for the, for the namespace. It's what, it's kind of a gateway down to things like the reverse map, which is run by the, the five regional internet registries, Aaron in North America, RIPE, APNIC, Afrinic, and LACNIC around the world. There are also some other areas like Enum, which it was some other projects that came out for some time that kind of got started but never really flew, but they're all tied off of, of that ARPA area. So I try to gather together what's interesting in that area, uh, put it together, and, and create a core. If you map it on the DNS tree, it's basically the top levels of the namespace. So that, that's one way to look at it. So then you would, you would consider COM interesting, or are you saying the things underneath COM are interesting? Well, I... What happens with com around com is interesting. How it's laid out, where where are its name servers, uh, what addresses are they on, you know, how is it routed, how big is it? If I can get that information for com, I can. And does it have any structure to it? Where I draw the line of what I try to keep track of and look at is if you as a customer say to someone, I, I want a .com name, it's up to you. What you're going to do with the name is something that is gets beyond uh, what I can measure. It'd be great to know all everything, but we really have a hard time tracking below that. There is a um, there is one use case though that comes up now and then, which I generally try to not get into. Which is, there are people who like to create uh, sub dot coms. They have a registry name that's they, they they register a name dot com and they say to people, "I'll sell you a name under my name." So they're you know one level down from dot com. Those ones I tend to leave uh, out of what I consider the core because. They, they can be run any way they want to be. Part of the core, if I go back up to the root zone and the TLDs, generally they're, they're run under agreements which are, are open to public, uh, public discussion in some way. And again, I say that with a huge asterisk because uh, you have to see this in different ways. Like the, um, for the way .com is run, run is .com has an agreement with ICANN. And you know, there's a certain relationship between ICANN and ICANN being a, a stakeholder-run organization has some leverage over how the .com zone is, is laid out. Uh, the same is true for most of the GTL, the generic top-level domains out there. 
uh, for the CCTLDs, the, the what I call jurisdiction-based or country code is the old name, uh, TLDs out there, they can do whatever they want, um, but they, ha- they are at least somewhat coordinated with what's in the root zone. So I include them because they generally run into public interest, maybe someone else's public interest, but they're kind of open that way. So why not just gather all the data you possibly can? Why fence it off? Because the scale. There's a point at which you just can't get everything. Right now, there are like hundred, way over 100 million names in .com. And if you were to try to, to ask 100 million questions in a day to say, what are your name servers? Uh, you're just going to spend all day, you know, you spend three days asking one day's worth of information. Uh, so, and, and also, and also that's, that's about the perspective, you know, what you're after too. So, you know, ultimately the, the effort I have with the core census is to build a resource for research. And so it has, it can, has, the work has to be done a certain way, but I tend to want to, I see it being used in a way where I don't need no, I, well, I would, everyone would love to know everything. A researcher wants to know everything about the world at every moment in time. It's just not possible. I guess that's the next thing is why are we trying to rope off the core? What is it we're trying to do by roping off the core, by defining it? What are we trying to get done? Well, it helps with stability. I'll give you an example of a project that I have out there is to measure the adoption of some, some technology. Like, and it's, this one is called RPKI, a routing public key infrastructure. They have these data structures called route origin attestations, or ROAs is the, uh, the jargon name for that. And a route origin attestation is a piece of routing security out there. So I would like to know whether this routing of origin attestation adoption is progressing and how is it going? Is it, do operators like it? So you, know, you look at one day, you can make a measurement of this and you see what it is on one day, but that doesn't tell you a whole lot unless you want to look at it over a period of a year or so or two years. Is it seeing, is a trend going up, up and to the right? If you like to see a lot of deployments out there, is it slow? Is it missing in places? So any kind of time, anytime I want to do a time ordered stru- uh, study like that, I want to make sure that who I'm covering is pretty stable. Uh, I want to make sure that my population of what I test is a, is a, kind of a concrete pool of, uh, of participants. So the roping off basically to say, I want to say, I want to find a, a population that I can track over time to see whether something is happening, that they, are they all adopting something or not? I don't, want, I don't want growth in my population to be what drives my adoption measures. I want, to, I want it to be, these are the people that I want to watch, see what they're doing, what, what are the operators doing, what are their tendencies, and so on. Uh, that's one reason for roping it off. Another reason for roping it off is that I have an like, underlying assumption of how these different players play. The operators of TLDs in the root zone and these other zones, they tend to run DNS in, I would say, a very conservative way. Uh, the DNS protocol is very flexible uh, technology. It can be very dynamic. It can be very changeable. It can be used in many different ways. But it can also be done in a very conservative way, very, very tight and only in very, you know, a very small set of uh, variables at play. Generally, we like to have very stable and steady uh, infrastructure out there and the core that I'm looking at is basically the, the more stable and boring uh, part of the, the DNS in terms of the mechanics. And so that it, I expect to see a behavior there that I can attribute to all the elements of that. I don't see players that really go off you know, and do strange things. So that's another reason why the roping is there. Okay. Yeah, we're pretty familiar with the RPKI process and what's going on there. So like 
you're saying you're trying to figure out the adoption rate. Is that what you're, I mean, but how is that, how is that interacting with DNS? Well, so I was actually motivated by a, a, a talk given by a RPK proponent a couple of years ago who came to a set of operators of, of CCTLDs. This is in the ripe community, or not the ripe community, the, um, the center community, rather. Center is the, uh, the European uh, uh, business club for those that do CCTLD business in Europe. And he was trying to convince the operators there to do validation. And I thought of the other way around that if, as an operator of a zone, a zone is my valuable resource. I want to make sure you can get to it, right? So I said, well, if I'm an operator of this, am I adopting these ROAs? How many, how many operators, how many of the people running TLDs and these name servers that are valuable resources have gone to the point of, of uh, publishing a ROA for their, for their routes? And so it took a little. Didn't take too long to figure this out. I, you know, you start with the zones that you want to look at. That's the population. That's the core. What name servers do they have? What addresses do the name servers have? And you look for routing information and find out whether or not you can find a ROA uh, that covers that. And I did that study, and it was uh, the, the number was pretty pretty small by some standards, like twenty five percent roughly. I think is what it was. And I've, over time, I've looked at it, which again, is the long-term study, and I see that it's not really going anywhere. And so I look at this, and it looks like 25% sounds like the people who are running the top part of the DNS haven't really taken to trying to secure the routes this way. But I started turning that into other research. I don't see it as a statement of the quality of the operator's behavior, but rather a statement on whether or not the technology really rings a bell with the operators. One of the cool things I was able to do, I talked to uh, a, a friendly uh, operator, someone I know uh, and I can approach on the phone and said, you know, what's up with this? You, you haven't done ROAs for this very valuable resource. Why not? And I had a conversation when I actually went on for an hour. Uh, the person was really, you know, most operators, very, very enthusiastic about their work and had a lot of good reasons for it. And frankly, I agreed with every one of them because I used to be in his shoes uh, at a lower level. And everything he said rang completely true for me about what I, why I would be hesitant to roll out a technology that seemingly was good on the outside, but when you try to operate it, it could be it could backfire. Now, unfortunately, and the reason why I don't go too public with that one uh, experience is that it's one person I know, and I don't want to single out any operator for the way they believe something. So, you know, it's been it's one on one. I would like to go out and talk to more operators and say, "What's your experience? Like, why? What? What makes you not want to roll this out?" But I, and I've taken it also to be less of an antagonistic question. Uh, it's not like, why aren't you smart enough to do this good thing? It's more like, well, what did the good thing not get right that doesn't make it appeal, appealing to the operations out there? So I think that's the next step in a lot of the studies we want to do with technology rollouts. So you're trying to figure out more about why someone might not roll it out. But to get to that point, you're actually trying to study like who is and isn't and getting statistical understanding of that. But you're doing it based on the DNS core as you've defined it. Right. Because as you go into the DNS core, you realize that the internet, you look to see how the internet's put together. You know, for example, we have, and I don't have the, I, I've been I'm writing software by day and trying to talk about it by night. It's kind of hard. There are roughly, I believe, 1,400 to 1,500 TLDs at play right now. And that sounds like you've got that many operators hanging off the root zone. But the, the truth is, it's not that many. There are many operators out there that run many, many, many TLDs out there. I think I believe at least one operator had, I think it was 250 or so that they co-manage. So if you look at, at the TLDs out there and start looking at this, 
you know, so 250 of them seem to work in lockstep motion. You know, they, they do things a certain way. And, you know, and so in getting the core together and by looking at all these 1500 elements and collecting how they behave, I begin to detect that there are ways to see how they're joined at the hip in places. There's also some direct clues. If you go through some of the information that I, I gather for the core, you see that a lot of them do have information about their backend operators and they identify the same organization. It's not, it's not that hidden out there. It's not a secret out there who's, who's doing this. So the core, uh, the, the idea of the core and the sense of the core, it helps me uh, break down the results I see. So, for example, I said before, like 25% of the uh, routes are covered by ROA, but the rest are not. It turns out it's not like, if you go through and count route by route, uh, many routes are shared. Many name servers are shared. And it could be that it, uh, in some instance, if one route were to be were to change, it might raise that number quite a bit because it would be doubly counted or triply counted for each of the TLDs and name servers involved out there. In fact, in one particular case I have in mind, there's an organization which I would expect to be very highly high in deployment of EROAs, but they're down about 50%. And it comes down to, they have a, they have a contract with somebody and that organization has resisted the, the ROA deployment because they have issues with, with things in, in the technology. Uh, so in that case, it's not like 50% of that organization is unprotected. Uh, it, it takes it's just one decision away from being fully fully uh, protected, as a, in quotes. The core and the sense of the core is what reveals the structure of the operations. How are things put together, which makes you understand the results you see on the surface and makes you understand things a little better. Or it helps you understand things a little better. Uh, because you know, once you have a, a technology you're after and you see it deploy or not deploy, you look at the patterns of deployment, patterns of non-deployment. Where, if, you, if you're trying to be someone promoting the technology, where and how do you go to fill in the gaps? Uh, it's not mass media if it's not, it's not even spread of, of, of deployment. It's sometimes traced down to particular operators have particular positions on something. And, and you, know, you can go, go from there. There are many different ways you can take that. The next step. So that's that's really interesting that you started out with DNS to map sort of identities to addresses and then walk down from there. Um, and row is one place you could go, but I'd imagine that there are other things you could investigate as well. Um, you could look at adoption of other technologies, like are people adopting uh, the latest TLS or are people adopting this or that. Have you thought of other threads you might pull on? Well, yeah, actually, the um, before Roa is actually was kind of an offshoot to be to be honest. It's actually a clear clear good use case of this. My original uh, area of work, and I won't go too deep into this because I could go on forever, is DNSSEC. Um, I've watched DNSSEC deployment. I, I, was, I was there at the beginning of the effort to deploy it. Uh, I wrote some early code, and I saw how it went out. And I, I understand what we thought would happen and what has actually happened. I studied that. It's been 20, 20 plus years of that. Uh, so one thing I do in the core is I do capture a lot of DNSSEC uh, information from these. And I look at things that are done in DNSSEC. And, one of the, there are a couple of things that tell me about an organization's DNSSEC stance and hence their their operational approach. One is, you know, how how do they manage the keys? You know, DNSSEC keys come and go, and I, we don't want to get into that necessarily right now. But by watching keys come and go in the DNS, I can tell you a lot about what's going on in an organization. Um, that's one element out there. Another one is, and one which is a probably more of a a, a higher profile uh, thing to look at is. What cryptography is used in the keys? You know, what, what are the algorithms right now? Like, you know, we started out with the, the, the DSA algorithm years ago, and then RSA has been the, the dominant key. 
And now we're looking at elliptic curving because we had different concerns out there. You can see by looking at that over time, who has changed their keys and how have they done? Not only have they changed the keys, but how did they change the key? Again, an operational thing. Uh, so that's an, a DNSSEC example. But you brought up some other things like TLS and all that. And that, those are interesting too. Uh, that's a little bit different. That that's getting beyond. Like I, I basically stay in DNS. It's the area that I can really get into, and I I do that not to be safe, but because I can be more sure of my results. You know, right right now, pipelining and building this up to me is, is is a hard part of the job. But I have thought about it. Once you get these names out there, can you go out and see what else is out there? And that that's actually what this is built towards. If someone out there does really want to go out and look at the adoption of any technology, any, any kind of safety technology, whatever level you want to be, this will give you a roadmap of who's running the DNS, who's running the core of the DNS at least, and say, I'll, I'll, I want to look at these areas. I want to look at this, this, these TLDs. I don't care about those TLDs. I can divide things up different ways. I, I get into some of the ways I've divided up myself, but I'll leave that for another part of the conversation. Well, that's actually an interesting question. A couple of things there that, that occur to me is the first is you're looking at uh, the DNSSEC. I mean, what have you discovered about DNSSEC? I mean, have you discovered widespread deployment or is it kind of kind of catch and miss? Well, it's, it's interesting. Right now, if I, I could tell you that the percentage of TLDs that have adopted DNSSEC, it's like 90%. And that sounds crazy. I mean, that's crazy high. It's like it's really successful. But that's not really a very good uh, statement for the, the whole state of the entire technology. The reason why it's so high is because the GTLDs that ICANN has contracts with, are, are, are currently they are all DNSSEC signed by, through, through agreements. And I think, I think all the agreements require it by now, uh, but every one of them is signed. Uh, it's kind of, you say, well, that's by mandate. That's, that's not an organic growth of technology. If you look at the CCTLDs, which are uh, the, the organizations that have had free reign to do what they want because of the his, history and, and the way they were set up, their, their adoption rate, I believe now, is right around 60%. And what's interesting to look at is the trend over time. Right now, right now it's pretty good. And I was looking at a particular uh, region of the world. Um, trying to, I, 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 I divide the world up different ways. And there's one particular region. I just, did a, I just prepared slides for somebody else. I believe it was Asia-Pacific where you look at the way that DSSEC has been deployed in that region, and you see that from there, there was a growth for some time, and for, three, for I think two or three calendar years, like 2017 to 2019, those three, 17, 18, and 19, is three years, there was no adoption at all. And like, what happened? You know, why, why did it fall flat? And then suddenly there was a few more in the last year or two that had come up there. And the, the interesting thing in that, that kind of uh, split is, there are people who are working in regions that say, I want to go out and reach out to the CCTLDs and see you know, what's the state of the internet in their region. And you can go around and say, well, what happened here? As, as a regional area, there was some growth. I mean, I've seen in, in some areas of the world, it seems like you know, peer pressure helps. Uh, when, the when the neighboring area is, is signed or running at a certain level, then other parts pick up. But in some regions, it's, it's stagnant. And that's kind of what you see by looking through a, a, a census of this. Now, in terms of pure flat-out surprises, I have to admit that I haven't found a lot of surprising things, but it's because I keep going over the same, same area. I'm, I'm testing a lot for myself. On the, uh, but recently, I did a, a project where I, I took a, I finally I tested out a particular algorithm, which 
lets me look at the life cycle of keys. And I ran it over everything. And I came across a case where my code had some trouble. And I dove into that. And it turned out that it was if it's something very terribly interesting I would have never thought had happened in the state of operations. It, it happened. It actually happened. Any, one of the rules is in operations, some, everything will happen at least once. <laughs> so yes. in this case, uh, in DNSSEC, we have keys. We identify them by a, a small number. And when you take a long, long key and, and, and try to shorten to a small number, you're going to have collisions. You, you know, you, you're just basically using a small number for a really big number. And we, as, as going back to the 1990s, as developers of this stuff, we said, well, well, that's going to become a mess. We can get around it. The protocol can handle it. But for people managing the DNSSEC, we, you probably never want to have two numbers like that collide. And so we said, okay, here's the thing. Anyone who writes DNS code will make sure that when you make a new key, it doesn't collide. Right, that's great. 20 something years go by, things have been going on in the world. I discovered that five years ago, a TLD had two keys in operation at the same time with the same ID. And that's where my code choked at first. Um, so I had to rewrite my code a bit. But the, the good thing was, no one knew about it because the protocol has a way of dealing with that. That the, the, the small number is only a help for operators, not for the protocol's mechanics. It still was able to deal with the keys. But these are the kind of things that until you run this, this visualization over the wide range of all the data out there, you'd be surprised at what's happened. And, you know, things that happened years ago. So that, that's, that's, the number, that's an example of it. I've, I've had a few other small examples, but only because I keep treading the same water. I, I don't get very many of them. Very interesting. So you've built this database of just basically mapping names to the owners. Now, another interesting thing here that people may not realize is that there are only a small number of TLD operators. A lot of people seem to think that there that every TLD has a different operator. So maybe explain that just a little bit so that people understand what's going on there. So there was a time when the DNS was dominated by, by the CCTLDs. Now, if you go back, you'll go back to about 2011. Maybe, oh, this is 10 years ago, I guess now. Time flies. Uh, in 2011, there were about... 350 or so TLDs in play. Almost all of them were CCTLDs, and there was only about 23, I believe, uh, so-called GTLDs, and they were like ComNet, Org, uh, Biz, Info. Uh, so generic, not tied to a, to a geographic location, essentially. Right, yeah, exactly. And they were laid out, you know, the original ones were laid out in some of the RFCs in the ITF before ICANN came along. Uh, but you know, Mill and Edu and Gov also are three that are, are in that that group. They're not commercial, but they're generic. They're not tied to a a country code or a, a jurisdiction. So um, at that time, almost every one of them was was independently run. Uh, it, also, the engineers were all over the place trying to figure this thing out. No one had really figured out how to scale. And slowly over time, uh, the some of the operators figured out what they were doing and said, you know, I can run a business doing this stuff. And I, in fact, I worked for a company back in, in that period of time, which was running a few few TLDs. And they decided that, oh, ICANN is now going to open up the root zone in 2012 uh, for applications to, to have more TLDs out there. And that's became the new GTLD program that's actually now 10 years old. And so uh, a lot of people went out and said, you know, okay, a lot of people, there were a lot of people who said, I want to have a, I want to have a TLD, I want to have a name, but they don't know anything about DNS or what a registry is. A registry is a database, a company, basically. You're running a database of things. So it's a wedding registry, a motor vehicle registry, land registry, tax registry, all the same thing. 
So at that time, a lot of organizations said, well, I know how to run registries and I can run the DNS. I'll just look at anyone who wants to have a TLD and I'll just funnel them through my you know, process. And so I worked for a company that we signed up out of, I don't, we signed up hundreds of customers to have TLDs at the time. And so when all was said and done um, and all the processes, ha- all of the applications were processed, we probably wound up with like probably about 250 to 300 gone, gone, to public, gone to production TLDs. And they were all, you know, they're all like front end stores, but behind it was the same warehouse. And we had the same machine, same, same all this. And so the front end of the TLD, the, the, the administrative part, the policy stuff, they could all be different. They could all say, I'll only let certain, certain businesses be in my area. I only want, certain, I want geographic. I want things from New York City here. I want things from Los Angeles over there. But the, the way that you run the database and the way that you run the, uh, the name servers, they're all the same. So they run that, that way and they run that way. And where you see, and, and again, kind of jumping around through my, uh, my thoughts here, sometimes some decisions are made better by the front front end because they have policies of how things are implemented and sometimes things are left to the back end like how do i turn the screws on the name server or how, how do i you know handle packets how do i pat how do i do routing um, and you see and now you also see through other studies i've done that decisions are made at different levels of this uh hierarchy of of layered services that we have out there so so you asked a question about the combining of, of tlds out there we saw start seeing tlds being uh cooperated by platforms probably about 10 years ago. And for a while, um, and the story doesn't really end, right? It doesn't end there quite yet because they're, they're, for example, there's one large organization that has 240 TLDs out there and they're all GTLDs. They all have 240 contracts with ICANN that they run. And they actually run the, they run the whole thing. They own the front end and the back end. Other places, other, some of the other CCTLDs that had, they were, uh, say, famously independent um, mindsets. They want, they want nothing to do with uh, the world of the, of the commercial area. Change started changing their mind when, when they found out that some people in their jurisdiction want to have city-based TLDs. Oh, interesting. And so some of them said, you know, that's the wave of the future. And so they started joining. And so now there are many CCTLDs that, you know, I, having been around in this field for, for 20 years myself now, who I thought would never want to be friends with, a, you know, a CCTLD and GTLDs being friends, I thought never, never happened. Quickly, you start seeing some CCTLDs saying, well, we know how to run a registry. We're already doing it. So we can do a generic one also. So now increasingly, you see commingling of generics and CCTLDs in the same platforms. And that, that's, it gets very interesting to get into that. I actually have some code which, which ferrets out uh, who's combining their efforts in different ways because different fields reveal that. That's a whole other line of uh, interesting work if they don't want to admit it up front. <laughs> if they don't want to admit it up front. It's yeah. interesting. Yeah. So knowing who runs these blocks like this, um, knowing that say, I don't know, take, you know, Verisign does .com and another one, right? Uh, they do a bunch, but let's just say .com and they do .net as well, not .net. .common net or on, yeah. Right, and then .org is run by um, somebody else, right? So knowing that, what does that, how is that helpful? Like, how does that help you understand the way things work better? Well, it helps me identify trends or changes in operations. Uh, for example, uh, there was, a, like I say, for one, in the RPKI example I had before, 
uh, one organization has only 50% coverage. And when I looked into uh, what was going on there, I realized that the routes that, that were covered by one of their suppliers were universally not covered by ROAs. It, 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 right away, you know, I know I know who to call. I mean, I'm gonna you know, if I want to dive in, I know who I'm going to ask to do this. Um, if I if I'm a researcher, I'm trying to discover what's going on there, and the best way to do that sometimes, and I guess one of the the lessons I've learned over years of research is that you can only tell so much by looking at data that you look your your observations. You, to understand why it happened, you have to actually talk to the operator there. So as a researcher, if I know how the structure is there, and I see that there's this common um, a common uh, step happening on a certain day of the year, I can easily know I have to call one person to understand this. For, let me give you an, an early example that I, one of the key, key statistics from DNS tech to me was the, the, the length of a key. How many bits are in a key? You know, keys are really big numbers, right? How many bits does it take for the key? And a lot of people like nice round binary numbers like 512, 1024, and so on. But I noticed that there were a set of TLDs out there that had, they were off by one, where they, instead of 1,024 bits, they had 1,023 bits. Instead of 4,096, 4, they were 4,095. And so I grouped them together. And this is, this is my early, earlier research uh, that led down the road to this. And I put them together and I, I looked at them and I said, well, you know, I know a couple of these are run by an organization and I have a friend there. So I, I called him up and he, I said, I told him what I saw. And he says, well, they said they, they were just noticing this too. They didn't know what was going on at first. And so he handed, he says, by the way, can you check out all these other ones? Well, all the other ones he identified to me were the ones that they, at the time, they didn't want to advertise or running everything. But I already knew that. But I saw that in my data, right? It turns out that the root cause of this was that they were using a product that was, at the time, very well-liked across the, the, the industry. Um, and they were the only one using the product. And it had an off-by-one error. <laughs> so wow that's really interesting so so as an example of you know i had found that there were like a dozen or two dozen tlds with these wonky looking keys it turns out it was one single machine somewhere not far from my house that was pumping out in, in a key generation that had an, an error and again the protocol was cool with it it did you know the size of the keys is you know round numbers are only good for operators but you know the protocol didn't care and it may still be that way until last year because no one really care except me and him <laughs> when you've when you've called when you've had these conversations when you've called people up and said hey this data looks funny and, and, and why is this what's the reception usually do people are they interested that you're interested in them do they, are they hostile or they how, how does that conversation usually go well first rule is i only ask my friends <laughs> <laughs> good rule <laughs> uh, but yeah generally um every time i've confronted an operator using confront as a, uh, as a, a, a funny word to use. They, they've been very interested in seeing what I have. In some cases, I know more about their, their situation that they do, than they do at one time. I mean, operators have gotten much better at monitoring what's going out there, but for some time I had better data. I've showed some of the histories of keys to some of the operators out there and their, their, their eyes widen when they see it. I have gone to some, we had a meeting two years ago with an operator uh, in a far-flung part of the world for me. And we walked into there and it showed them my history of what their organization had done for the past 10 years. And it opened their eyes because they had no idea. They were a good operation staff, competent people, but they hadn't been around for 10 years. And the previous person was one of those pioneering people that liked to do things without documenting. Uh, so 
uh, it was helpful for them to see this. Uh, one thing I find is that as you present this to, to operators one-on-one, -on -one, not, not, and one of my rules is I, I don't like to mention anyone's name. I don't mention operator names. And even in this phone call, uh, I'm having this uh, sometimes hesitation. I don't want to admit even that comms run by Verisign. That, that means that's like too much information. Yeah, Everyone knows yeah. that. Well, that, yeah, that's common yeah. knowledge. That's why yeah. I use that one. Yeah. So, I, but I, I try because I try not to embarrass anyone when I find something that's that's strange. Uh, and strange is not always bad. It's just unexpected as a protocol developer. But anyway, that, that's all relative. But it, it, when you go in to a one-on-one -on -one meeting with these folks, um, it, it gives a, them a lot of confidence that you really know what's going on. And you know, and if they have some background in who who I am or where I'm coming from, they understand that I'm not there to be a threat or to expose or you know blab away about what they're doing, but rather. I see something that may either need attention or is a sign that they could look at this other example over here. And one of my one of my uh, lessons is that if you're an operator and you want to do something that you haven't done before, first thing ask who else has done this and see what they went through, right? And don't don't explore on your own. Uh, so I, I use that sometimes to say to an operator, "Here's what you are, and here's someone else doing what you want to do. Uh, maybe you want to talk to them." Uh, situation out there. Generally, you know, operator, I do know operators don't like being judged publicly, and I think it's very unfair, especially, you know, I work for ICANN, so we have to be very careful about how we present any kind of a ranking or a comparison, and that's actually a good reason why I try to fudge a lot of who I'm talking about, which, by the way, is that habit from before ICANN. But you really, you really can't get into revealing who it is publicly. One of the challenges I have is how, but I, there are things to learn. I mean, there, if I look at a mass of, of operators out there doing something, I want to go back to the protocol developer side or the, the mechanism developer side and say, here's what I've seen across the board. And, you know, not get into bugs, not get into someone made a mistake, but look at things that have seem to be a hesitating factor that you can attribute, you know, basically by knowing who's, you know, you, you, you want to know that if you see two incidents occur, if they are two operators that are independent of each other, that's one thing. If they're two of the same operator, it's just a mistake, maybe. You know, yeah. the, so, or an a common implementation like what you found before, right? Yeah, and that, I guess that's another angle too. Is if you see something, what I can't tell is what software someone's using necessarily. But if I ask the question and I start pointing together that oh, these people use the particular names that are written by these folks over here, maybe your next call is to the developer of the, so the open source software which is used. And you know, so it's good, good to have friends all over the place like that. Yeah. So is there any other aspect of this research that you think is important for people to hear about or where can they use it or where can they get, you know, is it useful for the average network operator or anything like that? I would like it to be there. Right now, one of my hills to overcome is making things publicly accessible. Uh, and I don't really, right now, there's not a whole lot to, to, to get into why that hasn't happened at this point. I have a previous version that's been accessible to somebody else, and I've had one person express some interest in, in, the, in what he could do with it. And from that one experience, which is only one experience, of course, is that for researchers, I have certain things that they would like to have. It gives them a roadmap of what they want to test at their, at their level. Uh, so it, it, it's a place to start with things. The person I talked to, he gave me some feedback a while ago, and I've actually implemented what he wanted me to do. Um, but then again, I'm still trying to find a good way to make this accessible. And that the, the, it's the most annoying part of that is that once I make something accessible, I have to maintain it if it's day-to-day. -day, and I want to make sure that I'm doing that in a very sustainable way. I, I actually do have an early version of the of census that's out on the web. It's accessible publicly right now. But I'm a little shy to publicize that because I don't want that to be the main version. 
uh, for a couple of reasons. Uh, it's been an interesting process putting it out there. When we wanted to do it again, we just discovered that that, that approach was probably not going to be scalable for our, our, our needs at the, the organization that I work for uh, to, publish, to publish things this way. So what, what's a useful, why, why is this thing interesting work? It's a roadmap. It's a, at least a map of part of the space of the internet related to the naming to num- actually a little bit of numbering. It'll help uh, people uh, measure anything they want to measure about the internet. It's a starting point. It's going to be more useful to researchers uh, than it is to someone who's uh, trying to make a decision about how to go forward with with a policy or or um, you know financial information and so on. But it's much more of a ingredient, basically, in, in studies for research. It basically, it goes back to research. I think you need to take this stuff and, and work with it to make it something useful out of it. So, Ed, any place that people can follow your work, you blog or anything like that? I haven't yet. I will soon be doing a bunch of talks about this. The, the next talk, I have to start my talk for, uh, at ICANN 72 which will happen in about one month from now. Uh, it'll be happening in the time zone of Seattle, Washington. I guess it's October 25th. I had to look this up for some reason recently. I think it's a Monday. It'll be the, the next time I talk about this. And then we'll look at how we go with the publicity around this work and how we get this in the hands of people. Because it really, I'm at the point where I really need to have someone else come in, play with it, and let me know what's good, what's what needs improvement uh, with this work. But I'll try to make, I'll be making it a lot more known in the, in the upcoming months, uh, probably through the uh, spring of next year also as well. Okay. Awesome. Tom, where can people get in touch with you if they want to? Not that you're I'm blogging, not... but you know, <laughs> you know, I not yet that. soon. <laughs> <laughs> I'm on LinkedIn and Twitter. Um, just search for Tom Ammon. All right. Awesome. And I'm Russ White. You can catch me here at The Hedge on rule11.tech and, well, who knows, any other place you feel like, LinkedIn or I already said that. Just don't PM me on Twitter because I don't answer. But thanks for joining us for this episode of The Hedge and we'll catch you next time. Subscribe to The Hedge on your favorite podcast service or follow along at rule11.tech.